This podcast was recorded on March 14th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, as usual, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a very special guest. We have Francisco Blanche, who's a Managing Director and Head of Global Commodities and Derivatives Research at Bank of America. Welcome, Francisco. Thank you for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you on, on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, you notice I hesitate at the end of there, too, because I'm used to saying Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and I think officially now we, we need to drop that, um, that latter uh, two words out of there. So uh, I'm trying to uh, go with the new branding regime here. Thank you. Uh, it was a bit of a mouthful before, but we've shortened our designation, so I think it's, uh, it's probably for, for the better. It's, uh, it's going to help people uh, get things done a little bit faster here. Well, speaking of, Francisco, you and I probably met, what, something about 15 years ago um, when we were doing some research in the commodity space. So maybe you could walk folks through your background of um, how you actually started working in the, in the commodity space. And, and further, um, you're one of the few folks on Wall Street in the commodity research side that I know have survived and, and continue to maintain putting out good research. So maybe you could walk us through a little bit of your background, how you got there. So I joined Goldman Sachs in 2000 from grad school. I was at uh, grad school first at, uh, at Berkeley and then at Harvard. And uh, kind of the, the initial thinking, I was going to do something a bit different. I was going to focus on, on East Asian economies because uh, my, my PhD, uh, my, my kind of research PhD background is, is, was on, on, on macroeconomics and, and emerging market growth. So uh, that was my initial plan, but things changed pretty quickly in 2001, 2002, when we had a recession. I was asked to, uh, I I would be interested in moving to the commodities uh, research space there at Goldman, and and that was a great opportunity back then. So I I took it and started working with Steve Strong and Jeff Curry, who are both uh, still still at Goldman these days. And that was kind of off to the races from there. I mean, we had a great run, and commodities uh, started to perform. We had the super cycle. Eventually, I was I was approached by Merrill Lynch, join the team and develop a commodity research effort. When Merrill didn't really have a fully developed platform, one thing led to another. Join Merrill Lynch was asked to create an index, commodity index, first commodity index that, that Merrill Lynch had, which uh, which also turned out to be the first enhanced commodity index in in the markets. And a few years later, I was asked to take over the quantitative and derivatives research effort, which is something I still, I'm still doing. So now we're doing not just commodities, fundamental commodities, but also cross-asset quantitative strategies. And a lot of that kind of is reflected in, in index work across commodities, FX rates, and equities. I'm responsible for that now. So so that's, that's kind of the scope of it. Uh, so I, I, I'm a little bit different than other commodity strategists in the sense that, that I have maybe a bit more of a macro background and also more of a kind of financial quantitative background because of, of, of designing some of these quantitative strategies. In that sense, I, I don't really have a microeconomics background or, 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 a, or a geopolitical background, which some other analysts in the street have. 
That's a great background and, and information about how you got to this part of the business. And so, you know, uh, I do think it's interesting to have a macroeconomic background when thinking about commodities as well, because there's a lot of nuances and factors that drive the overall commodity market. But before we get into that, you'd mentioned creating a commodity index and, and a new generation of that, you know, with, without killing our listeners with all the jargon that we use in the commodity market, maybe you can talk about what was this enhancement and how to think about that when creating a new generation of industry. Sure. So let me just start off by explaining what a commodity index is and what it isn't. So when you think about the SPY, Spider ETF, which is based on the S&P 500 uh, total return index, that index basically picks up all the equity components and creates a certain weighting scheme, which is generally market cap. Many people are familiar with the S&P 500, right, or, or, or the Dow Jones uh, or the Dow 30. And the way these indices work is they aggregate all the equities, and then they keep on adding all the dividends, and then factoring all the corporate actions that keep happening over time. Like, for example, there's, there could be a stock split, or there could be a merger, there could be some companies could, could eventually fall out of the index or come into the index, and there'll be a rebalancing effort. So a commodity index is not that. A commodity index basically gives you exposure to the commodity itself. But of course, as anyone can realize, owning a commodity over a long period of time requires storing that commodity. And in the financial world, the way we do that is through the futures markets, right? So when you when you own a commodity index, you basically own a string of futures, right, which are futures contracts, which are uh, basically reference prices for things like oil or gold or copper. But you need to carry those positions forward in time. Commodities do not pay a dividend. In some cases, commodities have a cost of carry. In some cases, commodities actually pay. Thinking about your footprint in the market when it comes to trading, uh, thinking about, you know, dynamics actually drive the individual markets and customizing that for each one. And so that's put on your macro hat, though, here, too. We sit here nearing the end of the first quarter of 2019. We've seen pretty strong performance from various sectors of the commodities markets. And so what do you think are some of the technical factors and underpinning fundamentals that are driving that? And uh, how do you think that people should think about positioning some of these commodity exposures uh, going into the second uh, half of the year? So I think, I think there's a, a, few, a few things going on in commodities on a, on a macro level, right? I mean, we, we have kind of this, this um, big scare heading into the end of the year, which was driven by a number of factors, whether it was the Fed shrinking its balance sheet or Trump changing his mind on Iran sanctions, or maybe the Saudis pumping record levels of oil. Everyone was worried that uh, heading into into the end of the year that maybe we would have a recession starting in 2019. So it's a big commodity sell-off. But as we've come into this year, the Fed's changed their tune, and now they are showing a much more accommodating uh, stance. We are today in the middle of the whole Brexit situation, right, which is another factor that has been hanging over markets. And of course, we have an issue that is very important for commodities, which is the the whole U.S.-China trade negotiations, which, again, have also been a major concern for markets for quite some time. But beyond those drivers, which clearly have negatively impacted growth, and we've seen a major deceleration in economic growth momentum, right, which has not been helpful for commodities, what we, what we are seeing heading into the middle of the year is some of the supply factors are reasserting themselves. And also we're seeing slightly better risk appetite. People have come back into the equities markets. People have come back into, into commodities as well on the long side. And, and some of it is supply-driven. Some of it is demand-driven. But commodities are in a bit of a different phase to whatever they were in the 2000s or maybe all the way up to, the, to 2013, 2014. Commodities today are, are in, a, in, in, in more of a trading market, I would say. We're particularly heading into the summer. We are still constructive. We think prices have a lot of momentum because 
supply has been curtailed, particularly in the case of oil, and we think there is better risk appetite. So demand conditions are maybe turning a little bit better. Maybe it's just sentiment, maybe it's just the stock market, but certainly we're starting to get demand interest back into the commodity complex. And, and by the way, let's, let's, we never had demand disappearing at the end of last year, but there was a fear that it was going to happen, and that, that hasn't happened. So now we're starting to see inventories a little bit tighter, prices moving a little bit higher, and, and we're still constructed. We think copper still has room to run, maybe another 5-7 percentage points higher. We think oil has another... 10, 15% higher to go from here into the summer months. All right. Well, I wanted to jump on the oil, too. As we hear about the role of the U.S. And, and really being a swing producer these days, and a lot of that being attributed to the, you know, what people refer to as the shale revolution there. And so what do you think about the factors as a, as a commodity investor of U.S. oil dep- independence, right, uh, being a net exporter uh, these days uh, versus uh, for the last 30-plus years we've been an importer. And what does that have as an impact as you think about the uh, price of oil um, in the kind of near-to-medium term? Well, in, in the near-to-medium term, remember, uh, because the collapsing prices at the end of last year, a lot of the producers have come out in the first couple months of the year with relatively muted capital expenditure outlooks, right? They don't want to overspend. They are under a lot of pressure from their equity holders to deliver either dividends or a better balance sheet. So I think we are seeing a concerted effort to reduce the rate of investment growth. So that's going to probably lead to a a decline, in our view, in the rate of supply growth in the U.S. over the course of the year. Now, I'm not saying we're not going to grow this year. Of course, we're going to grow. We're going to grow almost 2 million barrels a day on last year. But the rate of that growth is going to is going to change. I would say that when oil, Brent crude oil, broke $85 a barrel in early October, you could see that the growth rates in the U.S. were almost 3 million barrels a day year on year. I mean, that's that's 3% on top of the global supply growth. I'm talking about crude and what's typically referred to as liquids, basically, uh, slightly kind of lower lower molecule hydrocarbons. But the point is that that rate of growth could end up being about half by the end of this year. So year-on-year growth rates will, will, will sequentially drop from around 3 million barrels a day down to one and a half. So for the world economy, that's, that's a big impact. And, and then at the same time, we've had a very significant shift in OPEC. Remember, OPEC last year increased production very aggressively to mitigate the negative impact on supply from Venezuela and then from the Iran sanctions. But today, OPEC is actually going the opposite way. The Saudis and the, the Russians and the rest of the, of the group agreed to cut production in December, and they are implementing those cuts and in fact, the Saudis have come out repeatedly over the course of the last two months and stated that they are prepared to go beyond the agreed curtailment levels to push prices higher. And this is one of the key reasons, if not the key reason, why we see oil potentially continue to rally into the summer months. And it's hard to avoid higher prices when the world's biggest producer, or now, now I guess second and third after the U.S. overtook both Russia and Saudi, but the second and third are actually curtailing output in, in a coordinated fashion. Remember, last year, despite all the volatility around Iran and Venezuela, supply grew by 2.5 million barrels a day, or 2.5% in a 100 million barrel market. This year, supply is likely to grow by half percentage point because, number one, U.S. shale production growth is slowing down, but number two, because the Saudis and the Russians and everyone else in the OPEC plus group is cutting back supply. And then we still have the Iran sanctions to deal with, because remember, President Trump accepted, or actually gave a few waivers to a number of Iranian oil importers in November of last year, which I think unsettled the market. But again, we have we have those same waivers being reconsidered coming up in early May. So so within within a month uh, and a half, two months, we could have another wave of tightening 
from a, from a supply side. And then we also have the Venezuelan situation, which is negatively impacting output as well. So I'm not sure that shale, given the curtailments in CapEx, can easily meet those uh, production gaps that are currently being left. And, and certainly the Saudis don't want to do what they did last year, which is push, push production to record levels and eventually force a crash from 85 down to $50 a barrel on Brent. Yeah, so you know, when we think about crude oil in particular, we, we typically think about it from the, the usual construct of you know, the existing futures market through the, either WTI, Brent crude, and the, the current players, you know, the OPEC, OPEC countries, as well as the U.S. But with this new entrance of China into the crude futures market in the last year or two, how does that change the, the, the current way that we need to think about the futures market? Or does that have any impact at all and, and you know, potentially the move to the petrol yuan versus just the, the, the common petrol dollar? That's more of an FX question than it is a commodity question. I mean, as, as, you, as you know, the Chinese currency, the CNY, is not fully convertible. And unless uh, China moves to a fully convertible currency like the euro, the British pound, the dollar, or the yen, it's going to be hard for non-Chinese entities to actively trade a non-US dollar or non-T10 currency contract. So that's, I think, the first hurdle, because effectively, even if, if a lot of the oil in the Middle East today is heading out to China, Middle East sellers want to get paid in US dollars or maybe euros if they dislike the US dollar for a reason. They don't want to have money coming in, in in CNY and not be able to to change that. The other factor that I think makes it difficult for, for China to get their futures market off the ground in crude oil, even though they've become the world's second largest consumer, is the mere fact that liquidity attracts liquidity. And today, both WTI and Brent are extremely liquid. So there's always the question as to how uh, attractive a particular contract is going to be. Uh, and, and there's many contracts that get launched every year by by the CME or by ICE, and many of them don't really really see much attention. So, so liquidity is very concentrated on a few contracts, whether it's, I mean, whether it's crude oil or sugar or whatever it is, right, whatever the commodity or, or whatever the asset class you look at, I mean, there's high concentration. So I think it will take a little bit of effort for China to, to drive that liquidity in. You need to have a lot of different market participants. Because as as you know, in, in commodity markets you have you have investors, you have you have traders, you have consumers, you have producers, you have intermediaries, you have processors. So there's a lot of different players that need to come in and start utilizing your contracts in a very active fashion to create that kind of liquidity. So I've been skeptical to be able to develop it given the constraints around the broader Chinese financial system. But I'm not saying that will not happen in five years. In five years maybe we have a different setup. But but you do need to have deep market access for many participants to get that liquidity. Yeah, but I thought it was interesting how you brought up the idea of all the various players in there in the commodity market, right? It's not just speculators out there. And a lot of times uh, when commodity prices go up, uh, the speculators are blamed for it. <laughs> but a lot of it is actually usually driven by uh, the production side of the equation. And so, you know, when we're thinking about commodities, we think of them kind of as a risk asset. You, you, you mentioned that earlier that during the risk on phase of this year, that commodities had caught a pretty good bid and 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 were trading positively for the year. But one question that we we've been pondering for a while is is thinking about the fiscal stimulus or not the fiscal stimulus, but the monetary stimulus that took place through the central bank intervention at the Fed, um, at the ECB, the BOJ that's been going on for two decades. And you know we didn't see that response or that reflexive mechanism 
within the commodity markets like we saw in other risk assets. And, you know, putting back on your macro hat, <laughs> thinking about it, investors say, well, risk is performing. Why weren't commodities doing well these early parts of this, uh, you know, let's say 2011 and 12, that part of the cycle? What is your kind of rationale and explanation for that? I would say that uh, the commodities actually performed very well from the low points in, in 09 through 2011, 2012. But also you have, to, you have to remember, average prices of Brent in 09, despite the fact that the low point was around uh, 30, were $60 a barrel. We averaged 80 bucks in, in 2010, and then we averaged 100 and, I believe, $10 a barrel or 110 $112 a barrel in 2011. So we had a massive ramp-up in prices from the low point in commodities to, to the high point of the cycle. So I think monetary policies were very successful at reflating global demand and, and global commodity prices, but we just moved up too fast. And if you look at the first quarter of 2011, right, which is kind of where, where you could argue that the commodity markets kind of peaked uh, in aggregate, there were a lot of things going on back then. The main one being that, that the Chinese economy was, was starting to slow down from a tremendous rate of growth to a different phase, and prices had become very, very high for uh, the second largest economy, right, which or second, the economy was supposed to take the baton from, from the Chinese economy, which was the Indian economy, right? And I remember actually being in Mumbai and in Delhi on, on that quarter and talking to a lot of people and everyone telling me how expensive prices were for commodities and how difficult it's going to be for, China, for India to follow China's footsteps with that kind of commodity price action. So we had this combination of a very, very rapid recovery. We also had the Libyan civil war, which took out basically 1.5% of global supply and put prices, frankly, at a very, very high level compared to historical averages. Because remember, the average of prices in 2011 was actually higher than the average price in 08. In 08, we averaged 100 bucks a barrel, and we hit a higher price point. But the average was lower. Average was actually 100 bucks, right? And we did hit 150, 145, and we did hit, uh, of course, down to 50 dollars a barrel and below. But but the average was was higher in 2011 and 2012. So and, and 2013. So it was only in 2014 that that average started to come down uh, with the advent of shale technology. But but by then, I think you, you had already observed a meaningful deceleration in Indian demand for for commodities. And it's only been in the last few years with commodity prices rolling down that India started to rise in the, the economic ladder and started to see a lot more sustained commodity consumption growth and has become a much bigger player in the commodity arena. And my simple answer is, for many years, from the first decade, uh, from 2000 through 2010, 2011, China pretty much rationed out every other emerging market because their growth rate was so fast and we had supply shortfalls. Prices ended up well above equilibrium levels. Other emerging markets couldn't really compete with China from a consumption standpoint. Eventually, supply caught up. We had a big investment wave. Then we had the advent of shale technology, and, and, and things started to roll down. And the Chinese economy has been decelerating ever since, by the way, because the Chinese kind of economy didn't really suffer the same blow that the world economy did in, in the 08-09 period. If you look back at, at demand for, particular demand for energy, demand for oil, you see a huge impact in, in the U.S., a huge impact in Europe. In most of the world, demand collapses, but not in China not in most emerging markets, right? 08-09 wasn't an emerging market crisis in the same way that 2008 was an emerging, oh, sorry, 1998 was an emerging market crisis where demand from EMs took a major blow. That wasn't the case in 08. But again, it is really once we hit that threshold where prices have really appreciated very strongly that we start to realize that it's hard for emerging markets to compete. And then remember, at some point, we start moving to tapering. And because uh, the U.S. economy gets better, and starts to recover, and then Bernanke kind of brings in tapering. And tapering had also, I think, a pretty negative effect on the commodity complex. And the reason is it created a, a relatively robust U.S. dollar backdrop, which became even 
more pronounced as we headed into the 2014-2015 period with the advent of shale technology and, and a big change in the U.S. energy trade balances. So there's been there's been a number of macro factors that I think have really created a major headwind in the commodity complex. Slowdown in China, India being priced out because of, of their uh, much lower income level. Remember, the difference in income per capita between India and, and China is the same that you have between Mexico and the U.S. I mean, income here in the U.S. is five times higher than it is in Mexico. And the same thing for India and China. China has five times the income than India. So, so, so it's hard for, for India to kind of catch up with, with China in terms of purchasing power. And, and then, of course, you have the advent of shale technology, which happened in the U.S., and that further supported, uh, I think, a strong dollar, which, uh, which again, none of those together with the fact that, that, that the Fed was able finally to start hiking rates. We're still waiting for the ECB to move out of negative rates or for the BOJ to move out of zero rates. And, and we don't even have to talk about Britain and, and Brexit, right? That's even more complicated. But, the, but, but, but those factors, I think, have really also prevented the commodity complex from moving meaningfully higher. Yeah. And as you talk about these macro factors, perhaps becoming a, a headwind where, in particular, China and the EM in the past have been a tailwind, it makes me think back to something that you said earlier on in our segment here and where you used the word super cycle. And that's you know, a flash from a past. You know, I haven't heard that word used in a number of years now. And it, you know, that's a question that we sometimes get still where we just wonder, you know, potential investors or clients are wondering, is, are we ever going to see that type of super cycle again? You know, monetary stimulus you know, perhaps didn't change the macroeconomic landscape in a sustainable or more permanent way. Is something, you know, as people talk about fiscal stimulus going forward, China's been undertaking some you know, some form of infrastructure spending uh, through their various policies. And as the U.S. gets perhaps further along in the latter part of this year, perhaps, you know, infrastructure spending talks will come up again. Will that stimulate the economic growth story enough to the point where some of these macro headwinds are lifted? I think they will. And as I said earlier, I, th- I think we, well, we are constructive heading into the middle of the year, into the, into the second half of the year. So we think there is going to be some upside pressure on the commodity complex, mostly supply-driven. Demand, we think, will hold. But the longer-term issue with commodity markets is that you still need to have, I think, a bit of a weaker U.S. dollar backdrop to help them deliver strong performance in that portfolio. And there are reasons to believe that the dollar may end up getting weaker in the, in the longer term. But we need other central banks to be prepared to follow the Fed's path and, and hike rates. And actually, this is a very interesting question, right? Because for quite some time now, people have talked about the end of QE in Europe, and, and that's kind of been going on, right? So QE, uh, QE tapering in Europe, and we've, we've seen people talking about potentially the ECB moving to a more neutral uh, rates position. But again, the big story last year was really about divergence. The U.S. performed relatively well economically. The rest of the world didn't really fully catch up. So in that sense, the commodity complex faced a lot of headwinds last year from a macro perspective because we had that very strong dollar backdrop that we couldn't get away from. Now the situation is a little bit different. And it's a little bit different because people are starting to pay more attention to the U.S. current account deficit. People are starting to pay more attention to the U.S. trade deficit. And people are starting to pay more attention, frankly, to the U.S., something that you guys highlight all the time at Double Line, which is the U.S. budget deficit. And the U.S. is not on, a, on a relatively challenging fiscal path over the next two, three, four years. And we think that's going to end up helping the commodity complex, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why you want to own non-dollar exposure over the course of the next cycle, if you like, the next two, three, four years. Because at some point, the bill's going to come home. Uh, you can't just keep pushing the limits when it comes to 
the budget uh, without any consequences, which is kind of something that's that's been going on for for at least the last uh, 18 months, right? The U.S. dollar hasn't suffered, or the U.S. economy hasn't suffered a blow. For if anything, quite the opposite. We've had a, a rebounding growth, but at some point, the fiscal cliff, that that reduction in stimulus starts to fade. The big stimulus program starts to fade. At some point, I think the U.S. dollar weakens, and then investors will will wonder, well, is this the best place to own assets? Uh, particularly if the U.S. economy cannot continue to grow at the same pace it has for for now uh, a decade. Eventually, that that helps commodity complex. You know, putting it all together, I mean, just to simplify that too, you, you mentioned the trade deficit the current account deficit, and the fiscal deficit. When you amalgamate those three things together um, and see the rate of expansion there, those typically historically correlate with a lower dollar. So people think that it's all about interest rate differentials and they look at nominal rates, uh, but these are the underpinning factors that actually drive valuation. And so I, I think you know when people think about this, you think about dollar weakness as, as you go forward. And I think that's what you were arguing for, for that accretive nature to the commodity complex, or at least the lack of a headwind. And it's probably it's supportive for non-dollar assets as well, as you, as you mentioned. So you were talking about you know people think having exposure to the commodity market. You talk to a lot of investors out there in your role. How do people use commodities and how do people think about them? Because what, what you were talking about before was just the timeliness of it, how fast and how rapid the commodity mo- market can move. And so that kind of temporal differences between, let's say, the commodity market and the equity market, for instance, even though they're both perceived as risk assets, they tend to zig and zag at different times, or at least at different time frames. So when you're talking to investors, how do you see them using uh, commodities as an allocation, as an investment piece to their portfolio? Let me just say that one of the things that, that makes commodities quite unique is that it is really a very diversified asset class within itself, right? So there's a lot of things that go on in commodities that do not happen in, say, for example, if you're owning high-yield bonds or if you're owning U.S. equities or the Russell 2000. The, what goes on in commodities, you have you have a piece allocated to gold, generally, right? So gold is kind of its own thing. It's more of a currency than a commodity, but it's it's effectively a commodity, right? And some of the precious metals are also kind of in that in that sphere, although some of them have more of an industrial bent. Then there is the industrial commodities, the proper industrial metals. Those tend to move together in general, copper, aluminum, zinc, nickel, although they haven't been in, in the recent period because of, of different underlying issues in each one of the markets. So there's been a fair amount of dispersion there within the industrial metals as well. Then you have, the obviously, the energy complex, where you have uh, crude oil, like WTI, Brent, but you also have the petroleum products, and you have natural gas. Again, natural gas being really uncorrelated uh, to the rest of the commodities in, in a very, very meaningful way. And then, then you have the agricultural commodities, which are also quite uncorrelated, because, again, the U.S. crop cycle kind of tends to drive corn prices a lot more than whatever is going on in Russia, uh, which, by the way, is very important for wheat, uh, or whatever is going on in India, which is very important for sugar, but not not so much for, uh, let's say, live cattle. So there's all the different dynamics in, in the commodity complex which we have captured into agriculture, industrial, or precious metals, and energy, and, and they're very, very different, even within the asset class, even within the subsector, they're very different. So people use them for different things. Some people use them to hedge some of the inflation exposure. That's a very typical commodity usage, incorporate them into a portfolio to hedge commodity exposure, so to hedge inflation exposure. And, and, and the reason why, why commodities are a good inflation hedge is because the volatility of inflation is heavily influenced by the volatility in commodity prices. Because think about it. If you look at an inflation basket, is there anything there that moves faster than commodities on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis? Not really, right? I mean, the rest of the things that go into an inflation basket 
are typically slow moving, but not so commodities. So if you're looking to hedge inflation, commodities are a good place to start. The other reason why people throw them into portfolios is diversification, right? And again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when you own commodities, you own a really diverse basket of risks, which again, make them an interesting uh, tool when it comes to diversifying broad portfolios. And that's one, another very big reason why investors have uh, the asset class in their portfolio. And then more recently, what we've seen is commodities becoming an important part of client portfolios as it relates to, for example, things like risk, uh, risk premium or, 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 or factor investing. And commodities have unique characteristics, whether it's commodity carry or commodity value or commodity momentum. All these factors right, tend to be quite different. Even, in, even commodity volatility is quite different to pretty much what's going on in our asset classes. And the reason is commodities are physical, which is not the case for bonds, is not the case for equities. Uh, the risk of statement the obvious. Uh, and because commodities are physical, we have to pay attention to the inventory cycle. And the inventory cycle can move in or out of sync with the rest of the financial assets. It really doesn't carry a lot of correlation because in many cases it's driven by weather, some other cases it's driven by, by the industrial cycle, in some other cases it's driven by geopolitics, whether it's Iran sanctions or Venezuela or whatever else it is. And, and this collection of risks makes commodities an interesting asset class, both from a beta standpoint, i.e. from a, just adding exposure to hedge inflation or, or diversify your portfolio, or from an alpha standpoint to have different kinds of risks embedded into your portfolio that, that maybe uh, you're not capturing when you're owning your traditional equity bond portfolios. Yeah, and I think that's uh, one thing that we've always focused on here is, is, is the very inherent nature of the diversifying asset, just it being a real asset. It's physical, there's storage costs, there's insurance around it, and um, it definitely does move much more quickly. And I think that, you know, investors just have to brace themselves for part of the volatility. But, you know, the, the nice thing is, is that commodities can be, you know, something that's going up when the rest of the world is going down. Or as you, as you mentioned, you know, talking about inflation, um, it's showing up in the commodity market first. So uh, we, we like to use the commodity market, too, as a, as a lot of signaling for thinking about economic activity, inflationary uh, behaviors. You mentioned the precious metals, for instance, um, giving signals of kind of people having fear of assets um, in the marketplace, too, or, or fear of collapse of, of other kind of risk assets. And so uh, I did think it was interesting that you brought up the whole idea of factor investing and risk premium. You know, that's how we've always approached thinking about the commodity market here at Double Line. And, um, you know, kind of the products we offer marry these ideas together. So, Francisco, uh, it's been a great conversation. You've definitely uh, been very informative. Hopefully our listeners think the same. But before we let you leave today, I know you're busy. you got to get back to your schedule. Uh, I think we, uh, Sam wants to introduce you to the last segment of the show. And that segment is... Sherman says, where I'll give you a term, uh, each one of you a term, and uh, to which you guys will provide the response. I've given up asking for a one-word response, so feel free to take three or four words to, to do it, but hopefully not a paragraph as, as Sherman likes to do. So we'll start out with uh, Sherman with global warming. We'll start out with Sherman with global warming. <laughs> No, it's for me, and I'm just looking at Sam. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to think of one word, and and again, my brain isn't working here, but, um, you know, uh, yes. (laughs) That's going to be my answer. That's fair. That's fair. Over to you, Francisco, with OPEC. Challenged 
outlook for the group. All right. And uh, continuing the theme of alternating individuals, we'll go back to Sherman with European Union. Challenged outlook. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use that answer again. Yeah. All right. So IMO 2020. Big dislocation in oil. Genome editing. Future. Renewable energy. Attractive uh, proposition. Capitalism. Resurging. Modern monetary theory. Hard to believe. (laughs) Favorite pie. Blackberry. Uh, I was hoping you'd say 3.14. Yeah, good luck with that. uh, Today, we're sitting here today with on uh, March 14th, so it's pie day. So I figured I was hoping. Anyway. You can still eat blackberry pie on pie day. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. (laughs) And the last, I'm going to give you two here, Francisco. I'm going to go out of... uh, out of a process here and give you two because I always have one that I like to ask, but I wanted to give you additional one. So the first one will be your hobby and the second one will be your childhood nickname. Hobby would be skiing and childhood nickname. nickname. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm from uh, Spain originally, so this is going to be a little bit hard uh, unless you can roll your R, which is curro. Curro. Can you say that? With a double R. So. Curro. There you go. Okay. You can roll your R. You can learn Spanish now. Yeah, that, that, I, that's the only thing I think I learned in Spanish class was that, that, that sound. So <laughs> I have to but, use my throat for that. I can't <laughs> roll my R's. Yeah. It's like a, it's a cat purring. Yeah. So anyway, Francisco, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you coming on today and you know giving us a good wealth of information about the commodity market. And I think it's very interesting to you know hear your depth and, and how much you really know about it. And for those out there looking for Francisco's research, you can find him at Bank of America. No Merrill Lynch there. And uh, again, he's the managing director there and the head of global commodities and derivatives research. So thanks again, Francisco. Appreciate you having you today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Okay, great. And for those of you out there, again, you can catch these episodes here on the Double Line website. Uh, you can find it through iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and other uh, podcast services I'm unaware of today. So thanks again and tune in for the next episode. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.